know that there is um, there's like an intentional decision that we need to make when we enter into the house of the Lord and to worship, and that is to it's the act of entering in, and that's what Psalm says: is enter into His courts with thanksgiving. And so we enter with gratitude, and we also need to speak to our soul. We need to do this intentionally. So before we read a psalm together that will help awaken our souls to Jesus and awaken our, ourselves to what he's doing and his presence in this room, I want to introduce you to a longtime friend of mine, Emily Lindquist. Welcome, Emily. She um, uh, is a worship pastor in New York City at uh, Church of the City, New York City with John Tyson. And, and for many years, we were on staff together at Wooddale Church in Minneapolis. And um, so she just agreed to come and lead for us this weekend, knowing that we're in between worship pastors. And we're so, we're so glad that she's just here to help. And um, so thank you. It's great to be on the stage with you again. On the screen, there's uh, Psalm 57, verses 8 through 11. And as you, as you read these, would you let this be said directly to your spirit? My heart, O oh God, is steadfast. I will sing, make music. Awake, my soul, awake, heart and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.
suffering, you saw to the other side. Though we missed was our salvation, Jesus for our Savior died. So we respond and we sing praise the Father. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the
can sing it out of a place of emptiness. You can sing it out of a place of need and a hurt. We call on the name of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will listen. He saves. Sing, I exalt. I exalt. Just the voice, we just sing it out today, the chorus.
So I want to sing that chorus a couple more times and remember that invitation and receive that invitation to bring those things under his feet and to see how he sees them, not how we see them, not our vantage point, but knowing that around the throne are seas of glass. So what he sees is not chaos. He sees what it will be. He sees the order that it will become and what he will redeem it to be. So can we just declare that you reign above it all, Jesus. We receive your invitation. We receive your invitation to come up here and see. church around us. Tell our souls what it is that you believe today. We believe one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of 
all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, of the presence of God. And maybe people in this room right now who for whatever reason in their lives, you have turned your face away. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's you don't know what actually will happen if you get close enough. 
I think about yesterday was a really cold and rainy day in the beginning of the day and then halfway through it got kind of warm and sunny and I was at this training and I remember going outside and the sun hit me in a way that like brought me back to life. And I know for some of you in this room that has happened. You know what that feels like to have it hit you, to have the presence of God hit you in a way that changes you. But this morning, I think the invitation for us is to then grab somebody and bring them with us. Like you have to experience this too. This will warm you, this will change you, this will mark you. And that's what we as the body of Christ do. So I think if we could go back into that, Colin, great. Um, If you know of somebody near you who feels that way, or if you wanna take a step of courage to say, I'm the one that it's dark, it's cold in here. It doesn't feel great right now. And I'm too scared to actually look. I don't know where to look. I don't know how to look. I don't know what to do. Ask for that help. There are people in this room who will draw you into the presence of God because they've experienced it themselves. So we're going to go back into this and take the step of courage in that, you guys. Take the step of courage. Over the universe, don't hard. There is no you don't know me, my name is Shailene. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And if you're new here, we would love to welcome you to New Life East. It's a great Sunday to be here. We have a little gift for you if you want to stop by what we call Connect Central, which is just outside these doors after service. Some staff members and volunteers will be there to welcome you and greet you. So uh, I only have one announcement for you guys. Uh, I'm your chairs, that's what they're called. There is a little uh, drop card that will tell you about our women's retreat. So if you're a woman in the house, we would love to invite you on October 14th to come to hang out with the other women at New Life East. So check it out, scan the QR code and go. That's the only announcement. So if you want to, please go ahead and turn to the people next to you, greet them, say good morning, and we'll get started.
the king had just woken up. It was one of those mornings where the night before was sort of like haunting his body a little bit. It was one of those mornings where you wake up and you feel maybe 10 years older than you really are. He could feel like the gravity weighing down on his bones. It was that moment where he realized he could no longer party and engage in the escapades that he had, that he once did as a much younger man. He throws his body up, he yawns, he stretches, he gets out of bed, he plants both feet down. He can already hear like the hustle and bustle of what's going on in his home. He throws his clothes on and swings open the doors. And as he does, he can hear and see the dozens and dozens of people who are just like making this place run. He finds his way to sort of courageously merge into the traffic the same way that we do on I-25. And he is in the flow of what is going on in the house. He can, he can hear the conversations from the guards about their families. He can see the the maids who are like scrubbing and cleaning every crevice they can find in the house, making it pristine and beautiful. He can smell the bread that is being cooked in the kitchen. He can see the food, the flowers, the fabrics that are being delivered in this place. It's like he feels like he's in the middle of a mall. There's people coming from every direction all over the place. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he hears the sound that sounds like someone has forced two cats to wrestle in a bathtub. It's just loud, shrieking and screaming. And he is set back for a second. Everything else was certainly moving with pace, but it was peaceful. Now he knows there's something chaotic going on somewhere. He he goes in a full dead sprint to find out where he is. He locates it. It's one of the entryways. And as he throws open the door, he sees three characters. He sees one, his right-hand man, his head of council, is standing between these two women who are screaming at one another, two Karens, might you? They're yelling at each other. One of them is screaming, he's mine. The king wonders if they're talking about him. He quickly realizes they're not. The other woman echoes back, no, he's mine. The head of council sort of shoves them back so he can take a step back for a minute. He yells at them, stay where you are. He sidles up next to the king and he says, so good morning. We have a bit of a problem. The king says, I can see that. He says, these two women, they live together, okay? They're prostitutes or sex workers, whatever. He says in the middle of the night, one of them was holding their baby on her chest and rolled over and crushed their child on accident. The other woman who also has a young baby was laying asleep when one of the women went and stole the healthy boy and now they are arguing over whose child this really is. And King, they need you to decide. The King has this moment 
where he's asking himself, why did I sign up for this job? And simultaneously, his heart has begun to beat at a faster pace, and it has also dropped into his stomach. He has to make a decision that revolves around a dead child and one that is still alive, and two women who are both claiming that this child is theirs. And it's as if you're watching a movie, you can see like the women sort of slowly fade to the background, the sound becomes muffled and airy, and the king can himself visualize the trees of logic and reason that are coming out of his head, where every decision leads to a different outcome. And he finally says, here's what we're going to do. The room drops silent. They're hanging on whatever he says next. He leans over to his right-hand man. He said, I need you to bring me a sword. And this group of people that at once were very expectant of a good decision to come from this king are now a little skeptical. Sir, sir what do you, you want a sword? Like just any sword, big, long, wait, just any sword? Yeah, bring me a sword. The right-hand man gets ready to turn away to go find one, and the king grabs his shoulder. And he says, and give me the baby. And friends, if you want to know how that story ends, you're going to have to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. Sound good? Okay. 1 Kings chapter 3. We have been in a series on the book of 1 Kings. Well, we know about this book so far. Actually, my name is Rory, if we haven't had the chance to meet before. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't normally just sort of cold open a sermon this way, but if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after this service. Infomercial done. Now, 1 Kings, we know that we've been tracing the story of Solomon so far. Solomon is the son of David. You know, David, short little guy, threw a rock at a bigger guy. The bigger guy fell over. He became king. That guy. This is his son. And Solomon has now been made king. This is the early stages of his kingship. And in order to understand the story that I just started to tell you, we actually have to look at a completely different story in order to understand how that story makes any sense with this story. Sound good? Okay. It says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Hold that in your mind, please. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places, hold that in your mind, because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father, David. So Solomon, maintaining all the things that David has asked him to do, Pastor Andrew talked about this a couple weeks ago, some of those things a little sketchy, but I digress, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gabon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gabon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. And you've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit 
on his throne this very day. Solomon's talking about himself. He says, now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor for the death of your enemies, but if you remember, um, he's killed all of his enemies up to this point. Before discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me, keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all of his court. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said. Now, a couple of things I want to bring to our attention this morning. First, Solomon married who? Solomon married who? Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if, uh, let's put our brains, if we can, let's go back to the ancient Middle East. Let's say we are, in fact, an ancient Israelite living in this day, and we're, we were to hear the news that our king has married Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know if you guys have read much of the earlier parts of the Bible, but there's this little story in it where the Israelites are enslaved in, and there's a Pharaoh who is ruling over them, holding them in slavery, forcing them to build Massive structures for them, beating them, abusing them, violent towards them, hateful towards them. So bad, in fact, that the way the story goes is God breaks into that space, liberates them, gives them freedom. And the way he does that is he actually like kills a lot of people. Pharaoh and his minions are like washed out in the middle of the water as they cross through into freedom. It's a, it's a wild story of God's saving power, but it's also a wild story of just how bad things were in Egypt. So if you're an ancient Israelite and you find out that this king of yours has married into the Egyptian royal family, what might you think? It's not great. It's sketchy at best. It's not great. I don't know what the equivalent of this is in our day and age, but it might have been if like during the early 2000s, we found out that a bush married in to Al-Qaeda. That's the extremity of what is being presented here. So first of all, Solomon has made this bizarre decision to marry in to the Egyptian royal family. Second thing I want to notice, he's at this place called Gabon, and Gabon has a bit of a mixed history. But what we discover is that Solomon is there worshiping, and it's identified that he's worshiping where? The high places. Now, the high places, this is a term that is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament to describe places of idol worship. Almost exclusively. 
So what we have is this very odd moment where Solomon, the king of Israel, is worshiping at a place that is at least often known for idol worship. And he's not like just worshiping. He didn't just show up for like 30 minutes to hear a sermon. He's like in it. There's thousands of sacrifices being laid down on this altar. He's going for it. Now, in the very best case scenario that I can understand from this text, he's maybe worshiping Yahweh, but it's at least peculiar. It's a little bit of a strange way for him to be engaging in it. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think is actually happening here. I think that Solomon is engaged in full-on idolatrous worship. I think Yahweh is in it. But as we often know with Israel, is they love to sort of incorporate gods into their like pantheon of stuff. So I think Solomon is making a very peculiar decision to worship in this space and worship the way in which he is worshiping. So what do we have? We've got a guy who is married into the Egyptian royal family. We've got a guy who is at least engaging in worship in a very odd, probably sketchy way. And in the world of Israel, to worship any other God than Yahweh was not just like a, hey, we maybe shouldn't do that. It was like flat out sin, non-negotiable. Then Solomon spends the night there and he has a dream where God shows up in the dream and says, what would you like from me? Now, the way that our Bibles translate this is a little bit odd. They translate it as sort of like a question. It's an active question, but it's really more, a better way to understand the original Hebrew is that God is looking at Solomon and going, why don't, why don't you ask me what I can give to you? Why haven't you inquired what I might be able to extend to you? I love the way Walter Brueggemann describes the dream that's unfolding here. We often think about dreams as sort of this just psychological thing that happens to us while we sleep. But in the ancient Middle East, the way they would have understood a dream where God is speaking to you is it is like the God that they are talking about is like breaking into your life. He is like hijacking the moment, getting his way in there. In other words, whatever is happening here is initiated by God. We often think of this story as Solomon is the guy who asks for wisdom, which he does eventually do that. But this story is, is set up by a God who is breaking in to Solomon's life. Then Solomon looks at him and says, I would like wisdom. I would like discernment because God, um, I don't know what I'm doing. He says, I'm a kid. I have no clue what is going on? Do you remember the first job that you ever had where they put you through like some form of training and they kind of just looked at it and it looked at you after and were like, you've got it, right? And you were like, oh, I've got it. You were like, I've got it as long as you don't actually ask me to do this job and then we'll be fine. Solomon looks at God and goes, God, I'm a kid. I have no idea how to do this. He's brand new and he's already going, I'm at the end of my ropes with this which wouldn't be the first time a leader of Israel does that. I think about a moment in the life of Moses where Moses has led God's people out of slavery through the wilderness and God comes to him and they're having a conversation and Moses basically looks at him and goes, hey, listen, let me just lay it out here. Your people are the worst. It might actually be better if you just killed me now and you took over. Moses is like, listen, I'm, this is way above my pay grade. I can't do this. Or I think about Aaron. Moses has led them out of slavery. 
Moses has gone up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And Aaron is down with the people, and the people are like, hey, this is taking a little long. Why don't we just build a God for ourselves, and things will be better? And Aaron never says, I don't know what to do. He doesn't have to, because Aaron's response is, yeah, that seems right. Let's just do it. You guys want a new God? Let's just build it. Get all the gold. We'll melt it down. We'll make something happen. There are plenty of leaders throughout Israel's history that go, I don't actually know how to do the thing you're asking me to do. So for Solomon, it's not necessarily an indictment on his character, but it does give us a whole picture. So think about it with me. Solomon has married into the Egyptian royal family, which would be considered a foolish move on his part. He's probably engaged in some very interesting, I'll use the word interesting, acts of worship, probably idolatrous, probably sin. And he is at the end of his rope as a leader. He's foolish, he's made mistakes, and he is weak. And yet what God does is break into his life and says, I have a gift for you. Friends, if I want you to catch anything today as we continue walking through this story, it's simply this, that if what God does for Solomon, he also is willing to do for us, it's this, it's that God meets us in the middle of our greatest folly, mistakes, and weaknesses, and he gifts us his wisdom. This is just how our God works. God doesn't go to Solomon and say, hey, bud, I've got some real great ideas for you, some real good thoughts, but I need you to break off your marriage. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I've got some real great stuff for you. Um, could you get up from this altar that is not focused on me for a second? Think about that. God doesn't even look at him and go, if you would stop worshiping these other things, I'll, I'll help you. He also doesn't look at him and go, hey, Solomon, if you could come up with like a new five-point plan for the nation, a new strategy of how you're going to implement it, then I would be happy to bless you with something. God just breaks into Solomon's life and says, why don't you ask me how I could help you? Because I got some stuff. I would be happy to extend it to you. God doesn't wait for us to like organize our life so that he can then give us wisdom. God meets us in the middle of the most dysfunctional places of our lives and offers it to us. Because let's be honest, guys, when do we need the wisdom of God the most? In the moments where we have made a mess of things, where the things around us are not going the way that we thought they would, where we are looking at our lives and going, I don't have answers for this. I don't have any conclusion on what to do. That is when God shows up the most. And what is it that God offers Solomon? Actually, a better question to start with. What does Solomon ask for? You guys remember? If you have a Bible, you, you can turn to it and look at it. Do you know what he asks for? He doesn't ask for wisdom. He asks for discernment. Now you might be like, well, isn't that just like, it's like the same thing. We're talking about the same stuff here. It's interesting because in the Jewish world, discernment and wisdom, two completely different words with two different ideas. When I think about discernment and the way the Bible frames it, I think the best way to sort of maybe give us a working definition this morning is that discernment is the ability to perceive and understand what is good and right for the present moment. Discernment is the ability to perceive and understand what is good and right for the present 
moment. Discernment is the thing that answers the question, so what is really going on here? God, as I'm looking at my life and I'm seeing what's happening, I've got this job decision in front of me, I got these things going on with my family, I got financial stuff going on. God, what is really happening here? Discernment answers the question of like, what is really going on? And the way that the Jewish rabbis would talk about discernment is that discernment wasn't this, um, it wasn't just this knowledge that you could have. The way the rabbis talked about it is it was a whole experience. It was all of your senses coming into play to perceive what God is trying to do in your midst. For them, it was about seeing through things. It was about looking at people and situations and seeing what is really happening, what is really going on. It was about using your ears, not just to hear what someone is really saying or what is really being said to you, but to to have your ears tuned to the still, small voice of the Spirit that is constantly sort of prodding at us, trying to direct us towards God's will. Ultimately, it was about tasting that the Lord was good. Discernment is rooted in the very idea that what God is trying to do is work things out for good in our world, and he's inviting you to not just engage with it, but to be aware of it, to have knowledge, to have an awareness of what he is trying to do to unfold in your midst. So Solomon looks at God and he says, God, what I need as a leader right now, what I need in my life is to be able to see what is really happening around me. I love the way Henry Nouwen frames discernment. He has a little book on discernment that if, you're, if you find yourself going, man, this is something I'm wrestling with, this is a great book to pick up. But he says this, he says, to discern means first of all, to listen to God, to pay attention to God's active presence and to obey God's prompting, direction, leadings, and guidance. It's about listening, it's about paying attention, and it's ultimately about obeying what God is trying to do in front of you. Let me ask some of you this morning. Are you in a place right now where what you're doing is you find yourself saying that phrase over and over again, what is really going on? Think about the challenges that you're facing at work. And you're, you're just, you know something's off, but you can't really pin what it is. You don't have language for it, but you can sense that something's not right. You're going, God, would you help me? Would you help me see what is really happening here? Maybe, maybe for you, it's like the relationships that you're a part of. It feels like they just keep like pulling apart at the seams. You find yourself going, I, I just can't, I can't hear what they're saying anymore. I can't hear what's going on. God, I can't, I have no sense of what is happening. I just know it's not working. Can I tell you what those things are, those kind of statements? Those are cries for more discernment in our lives. They're cries from our soul to go, God, would you help us know what is going on? I don't even need to solve it yet, but just help me have some awareness of what is going on. So this is what Solomon asks for. But in the story, you see that what ends up happening is that God says, I'll give you a discerning heart and I'll give you wisdom. Which should raise the question, so what is wisdom? Let me give us a working definition for wisdom as well. Wisdom is the divine skill of putting our discernment into action. It's the divine skill of putting our discernment into action. I say divine because wisdom in the scriptures comes from God and God alone. There's wisdom of the world, and then there's wisdom of God. There's two separate things. What Solomon is getting here 
is you're not getting just the ability to make smart, deductive decisions. You're being given the ability to see things the way God sees them and then do something with them the way God does. Now, this might seem weird to you because in the Western world, the way we tend to think about wisdom is all about what is like lingering up here. Do we have enough knowledge to make a decision? There's a there's a rule when you read the Bible, if you're trying to understand what a word really means to the writers, is to go back and try to find the very first place where that word is used and look at what goes on there. The very first place that the word wisdom is used, as far as I can tell, is in the book of Exodus, in this very obscure passage where God is looking at his people and he's giving them this new command to do something. I want you to catch it. Exodus 28, starting in verse 1. God is talking. He says, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Itamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Now catch this. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron, for his consecration, so that he may serve me as a priest. I find this so fascinating. We're talking about a priest here, and God is saying, there's some attributes that I want you to recognize. He says, I want you to do some stuff so that dignity and honor are placed on the priest. But then he talks about the skilled workers, the people who are going to like make the garments, those who sew, the tailors. It's the, the craft artisans that God is talking about, and he says, they're the ones that I put wisdom on. So if you're a person in the house today and you're like, you make a living working with your hands, you are the smartest among us. I think this is what God is telling us. You are the smartest among us. The priest is not labeled as wise. The people who take something and make something out of it are the ones who are given the label of wise. Or I think about what Dallas Willard says. He writes, this is written in a very academic article. He's literally talking about the world of academia, but I think what he says here is true. He says, he who is wise habitually utilizes understanding in selecting routes of thought and what? Behavior, which maximize the fulfillment of his total system of needs and wants. In other words, the wise people are not just the ones who know a lot of stuff. It's the people who know enough to know that they have to do something with it. That is the marker of wisdom, at least as I can tell in the scriptures. So let me ask some of you again. Have you found yourself walking around? You're not asking what is going on here. You found yourself asking the question, but what am I supposed to do? That, I believe, is your soul longing for the next wise thing. What am I supposed to do? I have all the information. I've gathered the data. I can see it as it really is. What am I supposed to do? And you know what's often true? Is that a lack of knowledge isn't what keeps us from doing the right thing. It's often a lack of courage or a lack of trust that what we might do might be the right thing. And friends, the great invitation of wisdom is to take all that discernment, all the things that you have now recognized in the world because God has helped you do it, and to do something with it. And so we think about Solomon standing in that room 
women still in shock at him asking to hold the baby and to hold a sword in the other hand. His right-hand man really wondering if he could have a different job. And Solomon lays the rules of engagement out. He looks at the room and says, there's no witnesses. You two ladies can't agree. Unfortunately, this baby can't tell us who his real mother is. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to saw this child in half. One of you can have half. The other of you can have the other half. How does that sound? One woman says, well, you are the wise king. We should do what you say. Solomon turns his attention to the other woman who hasn't said a word but doesn't need to. Like her body language at this point is speaking enough. Her shoulders have slouched down. Her jaw is wide open and tears are slowly starting to run from her eyes. She creeps her way over to Solomon and says, can I speak? He says, you may. And she says, can you just, just give her the baby? No baby should be cut in half. She backs away to where she was standing. And his right-hand man says, Sir, we got, we got other stuff to do. We got to move on. Can you just make a decision? Can you do whatever you're going to do here? And Solomon says, we don't need to do this anymore. I know who the real mother is. Because no one's real mother would allow me to cut this baby in half. He hands the baby to the woman who is willing to give it away. Because in that moment for Solomon, he's not just making a decision about the life of that kid, like if he lives or dies. He's making a decision about his well-being. To grow up in a home with a mother who loves you and cares for you because you're her own will make all the difference for this kid. Or he can grow up in a home where he's seen as like a commodity now. He's just there because this lady outwitted another lady and the king made a decision. The weight of this child's life is resting in Solomon's hands and he discerns and he uses wisdom to deduce the right conclusion. All because just evenings before he looked at God and said, God, I've probably made some foolish decisions already. I'm probably real close to the edge of sin here and I am at the end of my leadership rope. I need your help. And friends, if what is true about Solomon is in fact true, then it is in fact true for you. That I don't know where you find yourself at in work, in career, in vocation. Maybe it's in your own leadership, in the spaces that you find yourself. I don't know where you find yourself in your families, in your marriages. I don't know where you find yourself in all of life, but God too is looking at you going, why don't you just ask me for what you need? 
I want to invite the band to come up here as we get ready to head to the table. I can't help but think about what really makes Solomon wise. And I think it's this, it's that what makes Solomon wise is ultimately that he is aware that on his own, left to his own devices, he is a fool and that he needs God's help. And that requires a large level of humility to say, I know that on my own, I can't make this thing work. I know that I need God's discernment and I know that I need God's wisdom to solve it. So friend, what is that thing for you today? The thing that you're going, I mean, I've tried to figure this out. I've tried to answer the question of what is going on. I've tried to, I mean, I'm trying to even figure out what to do next. And I just have no idea. And I think God is looking at all of us and going, why don't you ask me? So I think there are probably two groups of people in here today. There's those of us who are going, I can't even pinpoint what is going on right now. And what you need to ask God for here in just a few minutes is his discernment. There are also those of you who you know exactly what's going on. For you, you're like, it doesn't take a test to figure out what's going on here. Things are not right. Things are not good. Things need to change. And what God is willing to extend to you is his wisdom of how do I deal with it then? Friends, in a few minutes, you need to ask for that. Because I can't help but think about the words of Jesus in the Gospels. On the Sermon on the Mount, his great treatise to all of humanity, he says these words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And I love this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, even though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Listen, friends, if you ask for discernment, Jesus isn't gonna give you something else. If you ask for wisdom, Jesus isn't gonna pull a bait and switch on you. If you ask for discernment, guess what he's willing to give you? discernment. If you ask for wisdom, guess what he's willing to give you? Friends, let's stand where we are as we get ready to come to the table. I think about Paul's words in the New Testament, where he says to the world, they look at the cross, what is happening on the cross, what God is doing for all of humanity to reconcile us to himself on the cross. The world looks at that and calls it foolish. And yet, what do we know? that the cross is anything but foolish. It is the wisest way for God to come and find us and draw us back into a relationship with him. So we remember that when we come to the table, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? We remember that that same night, he later, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Every time you drink it, would you do this in remembrance of me. Friends, I want to invite you to come forward this morning in just a moment. Our servers, you can come forward now. That when you come forward, I want to invite you to take communion back to your seat. And if you find yourself in a space going, man, what I need to ask for is discernment, ask for it. 
If you find yourself going, man, what I need to ask for is wisdom. I need to know what to do. Ask for it. If how many gifts would you give to your children, even though you are not perfect? And think about what God is willing to gift to you. As we come forward, we're gonna come down this center aisle. One of our servers will give you a wafer that represents the broken body of Jesus. It's gluten-free, so you're all good. You'll take that wafer, you'll dip it into the cup, which represents his shed blood for all of us. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Would you come forward to receive communion?
We've been teaching our kids this scripture verse, Philippians chapter four. Paul says, don't be anxious about, do you know it? Y'all memorize this? Yeah. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what does he say then? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we finish the service this morning, I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to hold that thing right now that just feels like I just don't know. Like, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. What's the thing that you were saying that about? So I want you just to hold it up like this. Here it is, Lord. We've all got stuff, big questions, large anxieties, great concerns. And Paul tells us not to be anxious about these things. And we got to tell you, Lord, they've been eating our lunch. These have been hard things for us. They're keeping us awake at night. They're robbing us of peace. And you have more for us than this. And so right now, here now, we take it. So this is what I want you to do, church. You're going to take it, and we're presenting it as a request to God. We're just releasing it like a balloon right up into the heavens. It's gone. God is carrying it. God holds it. God knows what he's doing. And right now, then, as we release that, I want you to open your hand just like this. Now receive the peace of God. That transcends all understanding, guarding, guarding your heart and your mind. And so I pray over you, church. Now lift up both your hands like this. Let me pray this benediction over you. I'm praying over you, church, that the peace of God will be yours. I'm praying over you, church, that the comfort of the Holy Spirit in all things would be yours. I'm praying soundness of mind, that you'd be in charge of your thoughts again. I'm praying for a level emotional being. And I'm praying that as you have a level emotional being, I'm praying that joy wells up from within you. But most of all, I'm praying that Jesus Christ, who has become our wisdom from God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption, that Christ Jesus would be yours in every way and that you would remember Jesus Christ in all you do and say. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Can we give God praise this morning? I'll send you out of here in a second. I was ministering at a nav a navigators event this morning, and it finished up at like 10:45, and we piled in the expedition. And I watched the live stream all the way over here. Just so excited to be among you. Can we give a big thanks to Emily Lindquist for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you so much, Emily. And Rory Green, can this guy preach or what? Give it up for Rory Green. Church, we love you. I don't know. Do I have anything I'm supposed to say at the end? Okay, great. Thanks. I appreciate it. Enjoy the afternoon. It's sunny. I think storms are coming through, so get outside. Do something good. Eat some good food. Take a nap. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we'll see you real soon.